So Esther 4, 13b through 14. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Lord God, we submit ourselves to the authority of your holy word in our lives, asking that your spirit would open our eyes and open our hearts. Show us Jesus, teach us the gospel, and make us your people. For the sake of communicating the goodness and glory of your name, we pray. Amen. So there's an old saying that goes something like this. They said to me, smile, things could be worse. So I did. And things got worse. In the book of Esther, it seems like things have just been getting worse for the people of God, even after there were small glimpses of hope along the way. Which is more than a little ironic, because like we said at the beginning of this series, that the book of Esther was written to satirically uncover the silliness of this world's kings and kingdoms in order to reveal the hidden king who's working behind the scenes to deliver his people. Where's all that humor and satire that shows that the hidden king's really in charge? Because things have just been mostly been getting worse for God's people. And there hasn't been much to smile or to laugh about. And Haman is trying not only to kill the Jews, but he has built a gallows on which to hang Mordecai and Queen Esther hasn't even revealed her true identity to the king. And she doesn't even know about that, meaning that Mordecai is in danger. So things have not been good. They're getting worse, but they're about to change. So jump in at Esther chapter six, verse one, just the first sentence on that night, the king could not sleep. Okay, we're going to camp out on this first sentence for a good while because it's much more important than it seems. On that night, the king could not sleep. It uh, just so happens that on the very night before Queen Esther is going to reveal Haman's plot to kill the Jews, and on the very night before Haman plans to hang Uncle Mordecai, and Queen Esther doesn't even know her uncle's life is in danger, just so happens that as all the tension this story are coming to a head, the king could not sleep. Now, this first sentence in 6.1 is the key turning point in the entire book. It's an example of a literary term called peripety, or parapety, or parapedi. I don't know. We're going with peripety. It's from a Greek word that means a sudden turn of events that reverses the expected or intended outcome. Now, here's why this first sentence is an example of peripety and why it's the key turning point in the entire book. In most stories, the turning point is the moment of highest dramatic tension. And it usually involves the main protagonists, in this case, Esther or Mordecai. And while they're certainly involved in the main action of the story, what we find in the book of, Exer, uh, in the book of Esther is that all of the action 
hinges on this moment, this first little sentence in Esther 6.1, on that night, the king could not sleep. So instead of some expected high drama moment that involves Esther or Mordecai, the very structure of the book of Esther makes this first sentence of 6.1 the key turning point because it is the exact moment at which all the tensions and the problems in the story begin to be reversed. Now, I won't let all the cats out of the bag, but what we'll see throughout the second half of Esther is reversal after reversal after reversal of all the tensions and the problems in the first half. For example, in Esther 3.10, the king gave Haman his ring so that Haman could write the edict in his name, in the name of the king, to kill all the Jews. But in Esther 8.2, the king gives Mordecai the same exact ring. In Esther 3.15, the city of Susa is thrown into confusion, but in 8.15, the city rejoices. In 4.1, Mordecai wears sackcloth and ashes, but in 8.15, he wears royal robes. And even in our passage today, there are two examples of these reversals. In chapter 4, Mordecai goes through the city crying, but in 6.11, we'll see that he's led through the city in honor. In chapter 5, Haman's wife, Zeresh, advises Haman to kill Mordecai, but in 6.13, we'll see that she predicts that Haman will not be able to overcome Mordecai. There are lots of other cool clues throughout the book that show that 6.1 is the exact literary middle of the plot and the key on which everything turns. And guess who was behind all these reversals and the happenstance of the king having a sleepless night? Not Esther and Mordecai, but the hidden king, of course. Now, check this out. Here's another reason why 6-1 is so important. And we get this clue from the Greek Septuagint. You'll often see it abbreviated as LXX, which are the Roman numerals for 70. Long story, not worth telling. So the Greek Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We're going to get nerdy here, but it's worth it. Stick with me. The Greek Septuagint dates back to about 200 BC, and it's important because it was written by Jewish scholars, and it gives us great insight into how they translated important Hebrew words and concepts into the Greek. But also, it's important for our purposes here because the Greek Septuagint shows how they interpreted Old Testament stories. So, in our English translations, it just says the king couldn't sleep because that's the most clear and basic translation. And even though the word Lord, which isn't in the original Hebrew, doesn't show up in our English translations, check out how the Jewish translators of the Greek Septuagint translate Esther 6.1. The Lord took sleep from the king that night. They knew full well that the word Lord wasn't in the Hebrew and that God's name didn't show up anywhere in the book of Esther, but they felt the need to make clear who was in charge here, which is so cool. So think about this. By making the key turning point of the entire book a seemingly unimportant event, instead of the expected highest dramatic tension point, 
It moves the focus away from human action and focuses on the hidden king who took sleep from the king that night. So for these last four weeks of Esther and for the rest of today's passage, watch how ultimately the hidden king is the one that's reversing all the tensions and fixing all the problems and delivering his people, starting again at chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. So apparently back in the day, Persian kings didn't just reach over and grab their phones and watch Netflix when they were tired. Well, it sounds a little weird and boring, and I'm sure it was. This reading of the chronicles of the history was part of being a king, to know one's national history and to have the laws memorized, that sort of thing. And what do you know? Verse 2. It was found written. Notice the way the story is told. It was found written how Mordecai had told the king about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who sought to lay hands on a king Ahasuerus. Huh, what do you know? <laughs> and the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? This is an important question because frankly, People are always trying to kill the kings. Rewarding faithful service to the kingdom was part of how you kept your power and position as king. And it wasn't just good for public relations. It was about rewarding those who kept you safe because that helped you stay alive in the future. So the king hears in the reading of the Chronicles as he happened to be awake that night. The king hears of how Mordecai saved his life. And he says, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him, which is not good. In fact, there's historical evidence that Persian kings were famous. And even this king in particular was famous for publicly rewarding loyalty to the kingdom. People were given huge swaths of land and, and gobs of money and prominent political positions for their kingdom loyalty. So when the king hears that nothing had been done, he was likely mortified because as king of the world's largest power, where people are always trying to kill you, not rewarding kingdom loyalty is a feeling of inviting your own demise. So, verse 4 the king said, who is in the court? Which is a little like saying, which of my right-hand men, my right-hand men, the, the wise men of my council, which of them are around to advise me in this moment? It's sort of like marshalling the brain squad. And what do you know? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace. Why? To speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he, that Mordecai had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Now, of course, as the readers, we know both why Haman had come, but the king didn't. And we also know why the king had let in Haman, 
but Haman did not. It's absolutely awesome how the book of Esther has set up all these ironic twists. So verse six, Haman came in and the king said to him, this is great. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? What a moment. Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, talking to the king, thinking the whole time this is about him, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one, to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, this may sound like a bit of a weird request. Like, why, why wouldn't Haman ask for more money or, or for more power or a lifetime supply of Oreos and peanut butter cups? But he already has everything. He's second in command. He has gobs and gobs of money. What he wanted was prestige and to be seen as, as dignified and powerful and important. In fact, there's some evidence from Persian history that the king's bed and throne and royal robes had some sort of magical power to impart the benefits of royalty. For Haman, who had everything already, what could be better than being paraded around looking like the king himself? But that didn't happen. Sorry, Haman. In fact, you know when you think someone's waving at you, but they're actually look, looking at the person behind you? <laughs> this is the worst example of that ever. Check this out. Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, <laughs> Great idea, Haman. Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you've said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Can you imagine the absolute terror of that moment for Haman? What? Do so to Mordecai? King's like, yeah, I love your suggestion, Haman. In fact, leave out nothing you have mentioned. And don't forget the Oreos and peanut butter cups. So, verse 11. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. I imagine Haman had a hard time getting those words out. He was probably a little less than enthusiastic. Thus shall it be to the man the king delights to honor. Now, Notice some really interesting stuff here in the last few verses. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. In other words, Mordecai was like, eh, that was nice and all, but I got to get back to work. And Haman was destroyed. 
Verse 13. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. He recounted the whole nine yards about showing up to tell the king about his plan to kill Mordecai and and how the king asked about what should be done to the man the king delights to honor and how he thought it was him, but it wasn't. And what do you know? It turned out to be Mordecai. And then to top it all off, instead of hanging Mordecai on gallows, he'd prepared for him. He paraded him around town in the king's royal robes. And look at this. At this point, the same ones who had just before encouraged him to build the gallows for Mordecai could see the writing on the wall for Haman. It says this, Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. The text doesn't tell us how here, but they knew the hidden king was the power behind Mordecai's people. And then, what do you know? Verse 14, while they were yet talking with him, with Haman, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now, here are a few helpful lessons for us today. First is this, pushing your way toward the front is a sure path to destroying yourself and others around you. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Self gets in the way of building a life that is fruitful and that lasts for the long run. Ego and self-centeredness and and pushing your way to the front and finding ways to be honored and making sure that you're noticed and being watched. Those are surefire ways to build your life on the very thing that will end up destroying you. We think that building securely for self instead of for God's kingdom is wise, but it's just for the here and now, and it's ultimately foolish. Haman's own family and friends saw this. If Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Ambition and drive and excellence can be great. But when they are about pushing you toward the front, instead of shining the light on Jesus, they will destroy you. And they will ensure that you pervert the people around you into accessories to accomplish your goals. The second thing is this, and we've said a version of this almost every week, but it's helpful to hear over and over again. And it's this, just keep working. It's so interesting to me how verse 12 just kind of matter of factly states what happens after Haman parades Mordecai through the city. It says, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, which is where he worked. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered, covered in shame and in grief. Now think about the contrast here. While Haman was destroyed by not being honored, Mordecai didn't really believe the hype. And he just went right back to the gate, kept right on working, doing his job, 
which is the same call for us. Instead of fuming over not being honored or not seeing all the fruits of your labors or feeling unimportant or constantly focusing on self in ways that end up looking and feeling like Haman, who was destroyed by not being honored, just go back to doing the everyday, boring, faithful, next right step that is the work through which the hidden king does his work. Friends, this world does not need more small-minded consumers who go through life as if having options to choose is how all this works. What this world needs is not riots and laws and correct votes and political machinations, but what it needs is regular, old, boring, faithful Christians who show up for work. Churches and families and communities are built through the diligence of people who go to work and who do the next right thing when it's boring, when no one else is looking, and when there's no fanfare. Friend, as a boring, faithful Christian, when you show up for work to do the next right, boring thing you know you're supposed to do, you're voting with your life for a kingdom that will never end. And then lastly, the man the king delights to honor is you, but not really. Mordecai was honored before his enemies, sure, but that that was more than just a reward from the king for a job well done. Given as we've seen in this passage, that the hidden king had plans to deliver and to prosper his people, It was also God's way of pointing to the Savior who was to come. You see in Esther 6, the one honored is the hidden King Jesus, who would eventually bring about the deliverance of God's people. When Mordecai said to Esther in Esther 4 in our series memory verse, the deliverance would rise for the Jews from another place. Turns out the other place wasn't from another Jew, or another geography, but from God himself, who would deliver them in the person of Jesus long after the events of the book of Esther were over. Jesus is the deliverance that God had planned all along that the evil one could not overcome. The man the hidden king delights to honor is you, but only insofar as you shine light on the Savior. So friends, let's take just a minute and think about this week's takeaway question. Are you humbly submitted to God's work in a way that will honor you, but not really?
Friends, as we've been saying in this series, God is building his heroes and expanding his kingdom <laughs> through the stick and the faithfulness of boring people like you and me. People who don't have to push themselves to the front, who show up to work, and who are willing to be honored, but not really, in order to shine the light on the Christ who delivered you from the gallows of pride and self that otherwise condemn you. Father in heaven, we're grateful that you're a God who has plans for our lives, that you're a God who, through generations of people before us, who showed up for work and humbly did what you called them to, that their lives were used by you to display not them, but your son Jesus, so that we would have an awareness of who you are and what you've done for us in the person of your son Jesus. We love you for the amazing truth, the amazing grace that we don't deserve and couldn't earn, that is his perfect sinless life, lived for us, that counted as an atonement, as a sacrifice to make up for our sins and our failures. Father, give us a sense of what it means to be everyday, boring, faithful followers of Jesus who died a self so that you would use us for the sake of building your kingdom and us experiencing joy. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.